This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. And we welcome to the show and to our studio, Joe Schneiderman, who is an appellate attorney. And I wanted to have Joe on the show today because last week there was a very important, albeit little-noticed case, little-noticed except in the legal community, and I thought that our listeners should know about it by way of disclosure. On that case, I was one of the attorneys for the amici, the friend of the court brief filed by the Committee for Public Counsel Services and the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts in support of the defendant, in support of the position that Joe Schneiderman was advocating at the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. Joe, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for coming up for Connecticut. Joe Schneiderman, I should note, is an appellate attorney and has a practice that is now exclusively appellate and uh, he practices mostly in the Massachusetts courts, although his office is still in Hartford. Hartford yes? Okay, Joe Schneiderman, here's something that people don't pay a lot of attention to because the press doesn't cover it, among other things. Uh, <laughs> before there's a trial, all sorts of things go on in the criminal system uh, once a, an indictment or a charge is brought. And one of the things that happens in the process is often a status conference or a pretrial conference, and the judge gets the lawyers there and says, okay, tell me what this is about. Tell me if there are problems. Are there motions outstanding? Are there things I have to decide? Are there things I need to be aware of? Are there things you want to tell me? This and that. And sometimes it's very formal, and sometimes it's not as formal. And in district court, it can be kind of informal. And the case that we are about to talk about, that this decision from the Supreme Judicial Court, starts as a garden variety district court case and there is a status conference or a pretrial conference. But in this case, something really important happened and the lawyer did something extremely skillful for which he was accused of doing horrible things, unethical things, terrible things. Well, what happened there? Just let's start and we'll keep it calm because... <laughs> At the end, this all does work out, although it was a long road from here to there. So what happens at this pretrial conference, at this status conference? So in essence, Bill— And, and what's the name of the case? I guess we should start uh, Commonwealth there. versus Edwards, SJC 13242. Okay. So what happens in Mr. Edwards' case? So at the pretrial conference, the judge, who's not the same judge who tries the case, asks Mr. Edwards' counsel, in essence, a question— about his strategy, and he quite correctly declines to reveal anything uh, about it. He gives the best answer he possibly could have under the circumstances, which was to answer the question, but at the same time not give anything away. Well, that's generous, <laughs> I think. What This is a case, the, the charge was a violation of a domestic restraining order. The person had been in the presence or driving by the car, uh, driving by the house in his car, uh, the house of the person who had the restraining order against him. Um, and what happened that was, I thought, just of enormous import and was handled with, I thought, deftly by the defense attorney is that the judge, I guess I should back up one second, there's an element of this crime that was at, at issue. The judge asked about it. What did the judge ask specifically? Are there any issues with service? Okay, and service means service of what, and why is it important? 
Service means service of the restraining order, and that's important because the prosecution always has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant knows the terms of the order, and a way to do that is proving that the defendant was served with the order. That is, some police officer hands him a copy of the court order saying, stay away. Precisely. Okay. So the judge says to the lawyers, is there a problem with service? What does the defense lawyer know? The defense lawyer knows, ostensibly, that he does not have correct dates of service. Put less obliquely, his date of service is after the date the defendant uh, violated the order. And that's a problem because the order has to be in effect when the defendant is alleged to violate it. And he has to have had notice before. He Otherwise, there's an element of the crime, an essential part of the crime that's missing from the Commonwealth's proof, right? Exactly. Okay. So the judge says to the lawyers, kind of maybe offhandedly or maybe pointedly, we don't know, but it's in the record, is there a problem with service, right? That's right. And the defense lawyer knows there's a problem with service. As a matter of fact, the defense lawyer knows he wins the case if they can't prove service before the date of the alleged infraction, right? That's right. So it's crucial. The service is crucial. And the judge asks, is there a problem with service, right? That's right. And the lawyer then, well, the, the prosecution's there. What's the problem with him saying, yes, there's a problem with service? Just what I said before. He'd have to be giving away his strategy, and he doesn't have to do that. Okay. And, but, and the prosecution would hear the problem. Could the prosecution solve the problem? They could solve it, I suppose, or it could, it could otherwise upset an apple cart. And we don't like upsetting apple carts in the legal system generally. <laughs> well, the defense lawyer says, okay, the defense lawyer, the judge has asked a very direct question. Mm -hmm. Is there a problem with service? Right. right. The direct answer to that question would have been, yes, there's a problem with service. In which case the prosecution then could have solved the problem prior to the trial. So the lawyer actually didn't answer the judge. What did he say? I've been provided discovery. So in response to the question, have you been, is there a problem with service? The defense lawyer elides over it. He doesn't answer the question. He says something kind of opaque uh, and, and, and oblique, which is, I've been provided with discovery. To which the judge says, okay, and then moves on, right? That's right. <laughs> so the defense lawyer really doesn't answer the question. He doesn't. That's the truth. He gets out of it. And he does it. Why does he, why does he not answer the question in terms of his ethical obligations? What's the, what, what's the overview of this? Because he has an obligation of confidentiality and zeal to his client. It is well established in a criminal case that a lawyer may insist that the prosecution prove every element beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's enough of a defense. The defendant doesn't have to say anything. He can insist that the Commonwealth prove their case. So he gave the best answer uh, I think he could have given to not give away his strategy to protect his client's rights and uh, to protect uh, the confidentiality of that strategy. Well, he, he doesn't answer the judge's question because he doesn't want to give away his defense and he doesn't want the Commonwealth to be able to prove the case uh, in some different way. If he tells them there's a problem with service, he's 
putting his client in enormous jeopardy of conviction. And if he doesn't tell them, doesn't tell the judge, and thus inform the Commonwealth, well, his client may win the case. Right. It's a big deal. <clears throat> okay. Let's fast forward to the trial. What happens with regard to service at the trial? So very shortly into the victim's testimony, the prosecutor tries to introduce the restraining order as an exhibit, but it doesn't have the dates of service that the defense lawyer previously received. It has dates of service, indeed, that are before when the defendant violated the order, which is legally significant because as far as the defense attorney knew, there was no valid order in effect. And now all of a sudden in the middle of trial, he's getting information saying, oh, it was in effect. In which case his client is cooked. Pretty much, potentially, yeah. Okay, so he objects. <laughs> what does the judge do? The judge hears from both sides. The judge takes a short recess uh, and makes an oral ruling on the record that I don't see any other solution to this problem except to dismiss this case with prejudice because this issue came up in the middle of trial. And the issue is that the defendant was not served with the information, with those documents, which is a requirement. The Commonwealth has to give those documents, those exhibits, and show them to the defense prior to trial, right? That's exactly right. And in this case, the Commonwealth didn't do that. They did not. And so the judge says, I'm going to dismiss the case in the middle of the trial? He did. Okay. So let's go forward a little bit more. The Commonwealth takes an appeal. Okay, what happens then? Both sides file briefs. That's the way the process works. Um, the Supreme Judicial Court uh, transferred the case to themselves out of the appeals court, which is also part of our wonderful process in Massachusetts. The case entered in the Supreme Judicial Court in March. Uh, they asked for guidance from friends of the court about the thorny legal issues in this case, and I argued the case back on September 7th in Boston. Okay, so... You file your brief, the Commonwealth first filed its briefs and a response brief. The amici, again, uh, by way of disclosure, I helped author the brief on behalf of the ACLU of Massachusetts and the Committee for Public Counsel Services uh, in support of Joe Schneiderman's position and his client's position, Mr. Edwards' position. And the first issue, the first issue, we'll get to the questions of double jeopardy and the like in just a minute, but the first issue here is, did the defense lawyer do the right thing? Did the defense lawyer mislead the court? Is the defense lawyer guilty of somehow of an ethical violation? Did the defense lawyer do something wrong? He didn't answer the judge. Can you imagine that? To which the Supreme Judicial Court had a sharp rebuke for the Commonwealth. What happened with regard to that issue? The court said that the attorney was absolutely right in how he approached that difficult question at the pretrial conference, and he did not commit any ethical violations. And the reasoning of the court was what? This was not a scenario where uh, the defense lawyer had to say something. If the defense lawyer was raising an issue which he or the defendant has to prove, like self-defense uh, or insanity, then he would have had an obligation to speak up because he has to put on evidence about that. Here, just as I was saying before, this was something that went to the heart of the prosecution's case, whether there was, in fact, a valid uh, restraining order. 
The defense attorney needed to say nothing because, A, the Commonwealth always bears the burden of proof, and B, uh, it was not something that he had to put on any evidence about. Yeah, I, I think it's worth noting for our listeners that, in fact, this right to remain silent means that the defendant can plead not guilty, say nothing when offered the opportunity to give an opening, cross-examine not one whit of any Commonwealth witness, not put on any evidence whatsoever, not even make a closing argument, although that would be goofy. <laughs> all of this would be goofy, to be sure. But all of that could happen, and simply he could argue the Commonwealth has not proven every element of the case beyond a reasonable doubt, and if that's true, he has to be acquitted. Okay, so this element, proving an element of the crime, an essential piece of the crime, is crucial. And the Commonwealth didn't do it. And the judge then dismissed the case. Okay. The case then enters as a matter, of course, with the Commonwealth's appeal at the appeals court. Why does the uh, Supreme Judicial Court then take a case directly on its own motion from the appeals court? The Supreme Judicial Court is committed to developing the law of the Commonwealth. The appeals court exists um, as a filter to deal with day-to-day -day issues of error. The Supreme Judicial Court deals with broad questions of law that affect everyone in Massachusetts and may have implications elsewhere for the development uh, of the law. So the Supreme Judicial Court saw that there were these thorny issues about, does the defense attorney have some obligation to speak up here? Um, is that, and if he does, how does that affect just what you were about to get to, the question of double jeopardy. Could Mr. Edwards be retried for this? Okay, so the first thing that the SJC decides in Commonwealth versus Edwards is, <clears throat> excuse me, the defense lawyer did just fine. He complied with his obligation. He did not answer the judge's question and by not answering and, and the Commonwealth says, and being misleading, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He was exonerated totally by the court. The defense lawyer was. He was. And then they got to the question of double jeopardy, which I think you're going to want to hear about. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with attorney Joe Schneiderman right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Authorization, enrollment, and activation activities are required. Receive all services. Contact institution for details. Two lattes, please. On me. Yeah? My free Casasa cash back checking account surprised me with sweet cash rewards. So thoughtful. Casasa cash back simply appreciates me. It also refunds my ATM withdrawal fees. Huh. My mega bank account just takes money out every month without even asking. Sounds like it's time to move on. Take back the special treatment you deserve with Casasa cash back. Ask for Casasa by name at Franklin First or online at franklinfirst.org. Federally insured by NCU. Fred gets on his bike in Ashfield and starts pedaling. A few miles later, soap. Wait, what? When Fred pedals, it turns the soap paddle. Fred's soap is called Just Soap. 
the soap with a story. So many things at the Atlas Farm Store have a story, like Divine Roots Lavender Face Cream. It's luminescent, a woman commented on Divine Roots' Etsy page. This time of year, the Atlas Farm Store is the Atlas Farm Store and gift shop. So many things made here, like petal-powered Just Soap and luscious lavender face cream. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with attorney Joe Schneiderman, who won the case, the victorious appellate attorney. He is an appellate attorney by trade in Commonwealth versus Edwards, decided last week by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. We've been talking about how the defense attorney did not answer the judge's question. The Commonwealth claimed, you're misleading the court. You're misleading us and made all sorts of accusations to which the court said the defense attorney did exactly what he was supposed to do. The Commonwealth is wrong. They shouldn't have made those accusations, translating the legalese into uh, English. And the Commonwealth also was, well, it didn't fare well on another aspect of this. Well, the court said what about the Commonwealth's behavior in this situation? In short, the Commonwealth had... uh the duty uh, to disclose this information well before trial, and they did not. The information being the dates of service uh, in documentary form. The Commonwealth was saying, in essence, no harm, no foul. We didn't break these rules, and I felt it was important to say, actually, you had to disclose this information, which is an ancient obligation on the part of the Commonwealth to disclose anything they plan to introduce at trial. Okay. So, by the way, we should go this. Where was this case? Where would it? This was in the Springfield District Court. Okay. So it's a Western Mass case. It is. It goes to the appeals court because that's the normal process when the Commonwealth files its appeal. And then the Supreme Judicial Court on its own motions with requests for other groups or individuals to weigh in as amicus or amici, um, to, that's a friend of the court brief, uh, mm-hmm. to say what we think because this is a case that raised really important issues about the obligations of the defense lawyer and the obligations of the Commonwealth. And again, the SJC said, the Supreme Judicial Court said, the defense lawyer did exactly what his ethical and legal obligations were by not answering the judge's question. And no, Commonwealth, your accusation that he misled the court is wrong. So that's the first thing. The judge then dismisses the case uh, in the middle of the trial saying, Commonwealth, you made a serious, serious mistake by not giving this information. Uh, That raises the issue because the Commonwealth said, well, okay, so sorry, our bad. We'll just try him again, raising the issue of double jeopardy. 
What happened with regard to that issue? Joe Schneiderman. The Supreme Judicial Court ruled that double jeopardy prohibited uh, a retrial of Mr. Edwards. Okay. Well, tell us what the double jeopardy clause is. There's a federal constitutional right against prohibition against double jeopardy, a state uh, common law uh, long-time right against double jeopardy. Uh, what, did the, uh, what did the Supreme Judicial Court say about the defense claim? You can't try me again. It's double jeopardy. And double jeopardy is also embodied in statute, General Laws, Chapter 263, Section 7. Uh, the Supreme Judicial Court, uh, the first question was, did jeopardy attach? And jeopardy attaches either if it's a judge sitting without a jury, starts to hear evidence, or if it's a jury trial, when a jury is impaneled. Jeopardy here had clearly attached because both parties actually went to all the process of impaneling a jury. And this was important because in Springfield, the prosecution said Jeopardy never attached or Mr. Edwards never truly was in Jeopardy, which is odd because both sides actually had impaneled a jury. The jury was impaneled and a witness was on the stand. Absolutely. And the trial was going forward. Yes, it was. I, I don't get it. How did, what was the claim that Jeopardy hadn't attached? Jeopardy attaches when the jury is sworn in, right? That's absolutely right. Okay, so what am I missing here? The prosecution was saying, in essence, the defense attorney's strategy somehow vicariously took away the right to be free from double Jeopardy. Uh, and they relied on a 20-year-old case saying that if the court doesn't actually hear any evidence relating to the charges, Jeopardy hasn't truly attached, which to me, that was strange because just as you said, Bill, a jury was impaneled, the victim herself was testifying, Jeopardy had clearly attached. Okay, so that was, that was smoke and mirrors from the Commonwealth. But the issue about what the judge did Declaring a mistrial and dismissing the case with prejudice, um, that raised a really thorny issue. By the way, let's stop here for one second and pause here for one second. What does it mean for a case to be dismissed with prejudice? As In essence, it is that something has gone so badly wrong that there is no way uh, to remedy that wrong except to end the criminal case. <clears throat> And with prejudice means it can't be retried. Exactly. Okay, so that seems pretty clear. Unfortunately not. What happens? So the judge entered an order saying, I'm dismissing this case with prejudice because I don't see any way to correct this problem uh, about the restraining order. Um, those orders, though, or orders of that sort, uh, ending a case because the prosecution didn't comply with their obligations about discovery are extraordinary, and you have to meet a very heavy burden to do it. And the court actually ruled that the judge got that part of it wrong by characterizing it as a dismissal with prejudice because those extraordinary circumstances weren't quite here. But the question still remains, does double jeopardy permit a retrial? And the court said, no, double jeopardy does not permit a retrial here because, interestingly enough, the judge had other options short of completely ending this case. And because it was the judge who was the one who entered this order without any input from the parties, 
it took the defendant's ability to make a choice away from him, and that uh, created, or that ended the case, and double jeopardy kicked in in the defendant's favor. So in an odd way, the judge who did, well, did it wrong, maybe, by dismissing it with prejudice as opposed to entering a judgment of acquittal because the Commonwealth couldn't prove the elements and so on. The court said the judge the judge made a mistake, <clears throat> and therefore that's why the defendant can't be retried? In essence, yes. And he did that in the middle of the trial, ended the trial. So that prohibits a retrial. The defendant now is essentially has a judgment of acquittal or a not guilty entered on his behalf. What's the value of people could say, well, wait a second, what's the big deal? You try it again. What's the importance of double jeopardy? Why is it part of our fundamental laws, our, our common law going back hundreds of years, the constitutional provision in the federal constitution, a state statute as well? This is a right people really care about. Why? It's important because the Commonwealth, with all their resources, cannot be allowed to harass or browbeat someone into conviction. The Commonwealth gets one full and fair opportunity to try the case. If they can't, if there's an acquittal or if there is some serious enough error that ends the case, the defendant should be protected from having to endure all the stresses and risks of trial. On the other hand, there are cases, of course, where uh, a 10 defendant is tried again and sometimes again and sometimes again, as we saw in a recent murder here, case here in uh, uh, in Western Massachusetts. Uh, so there are t times, there are exceptions to double jeopardy. You want to tell us just a bit about that? Because uh, we always hear about a retrial on this or a retrial on that. How does that and why does that come about? So one exception, which was actually or at the heart of this case, was, was there, quote unquote, manifest necessity for a retrial? And that question has to balance the public's right to justice as opposed to the defendant's right to be tried by this court. And that and one and the particular jury that he agreed to be the ones who would determine his or her guilt or innocence. Exactly. Very well said, Bill. Okay. And why is that important? It's important because the defendant the jury is the conscience of the community. The defendant uh, is placing himself, as is said in the charge to the jury, upon the country. And his country that he has selected as a jury, he wants that jury because he thinks it's the best course for him towards an acquittal. Okay. And when the case, the case goes up, for example, let's say a defendant is convicted, mm -hmm. uh, and then there is a... The, Supreme Judicial Court or the Appeals Court says, yes, there was a serious error in this trial. This, this decision, this conviction has to be put aside and the defendant can be retried. Why isn't that double jeopardy? Why doesn't double jeopardy prohibit that retrial? Because that error relating to, say, a jury instruction or the admission of evidence, um, the remedy is a new trial. It's a different analysis than did the Commonwealth prove the case below beyond a reasonable doubt. If the Supreme Judicial Court or the Appeals Court reverses a conviction and says there's not enough evidence here or it requires speculation or whatever, then the defendant can't be tried because the prosecutors never met their burden. 
but a reversal saying there was a bad jury instruction or bad evidence, that in and of itself is not the same thing. Is so that, that's why is someone that, could be is retried. Is that the reason there's a man, is that manifest necessity for a retrial? No, that's a very different analysis than a manifest necessity. A manifest necessity comes up in these sorts of circumstances, which is something has gone wrong at the defendant's trial and the judge has to fashion a remedy that balances the defendant's rights to trial by this court, by this jury, uh, against the public's right to a just judgment and to uh, seeing the sound administration of criminal justice. And so if there is a manifest necessity, the defendant can be retried, and if there isn't, then he can't. Exactly. Okay, last question for you. Um, I ask this often of authors, um, and but I'd like to ask it of you, Joe Schneiderman, as an attorney who's had some 30 appellate arguments, some many at the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. Is there something that this case, and maybe the answer is no, there's something in this case that you learned either about yourself as a practitioner or about the law that you didn't expect when you went into this representation of the defendant on appeal? You are not his trial lawyer. I was not. You, you do appellate law. Okay. It's something you learned either about yourself, about the case, about the law, the Constitution that you didn't expect? Double jeopardy is a maze even for lawyers. And for me, it took me a long time. In fact, at this time last year, I was writing the brief and I had just finally felt comfortable with those maze-like concepts in double jeopardy. Because, Bill, just as we talked about, this discussion about manifest necessity and all the rules, it's a back and forth. It requires a lot of mental exercise. So I'm very proud that I figured that out and got through it. And I would be remiss not to give my awesome mentee out in Boston a, a tout, attorney Raina Ramirez, who helped me break the back of the case by giving me a 30-year-old case site. So she was very helpful. And I'll note also, I'm a huge fan of Jeopardy on Channel 22. <laughs> yes, and, and since the icon on, on your Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I am a huge Jeopardy fan, uh, and I actually host Jeopardy uh, on Zoom. And I loved, and it kept me inspired the Jeopardy theme. I played the Jeopardy theme in my car driving up to argument, and I actually brought Alex Trebek's photo to the lectern. <laughs> We're going to leave it there. Attorney Joseph Schneiderman, appellate attorney, Victor in the case of Commonwealth versus Edwards. Congratulations and thanks for your time, your expertise, and your insights today and your analysis. We really appreciate it, Joe. My pleasure, Bill, and it's a great honor to be working with you again. We worked together seven years ago on a win. We did. We'll be right back. Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts cities and towns can now apply for a new round of COVID-19 tests and personal protective equipment made available through the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. On Tuesday, the state agency announced plans to distribute around 3.5 million at-home rapid tests, K95 masks, face shields, and gloves to municipalities. Councils on aging, health care providers, and senior affordable housing providers can also apply to receive these supplies. A new cooperative grocery store is coming to Amherst. 
the Common Share Food Co-op. The concept for the local and organically focused food store has been several years in the making, and over the summer, the store entered a pre-construction phase. Board of Director member Monica Garcia says the store will focus on organic and locally sourced food. We chose a cooperative model because it's it's a community-owned space that's driven by the unique needs and character of the community and it's devoted to community benefit. So no one is trying to enrich themselves in a cooperative. The new store will be located near downtown Amherst and on a bus route to promote accessibility. As a cooperative, the store will be owned by both the members and workers. New housing will be coming to Pelham less than a 10-minute drive from Amherst Center. A Springfield-based nonprofit announced they'll be heading up the project to build 34 affordable housing units on Amherst Road. The housing will be designed to look like something classic and will come with energy-efficient features. Construction is expected to begin late spring 2023 and should take 14 to 16 months to build. I am Nick Oresco, mostly sunny today with highs in the mid to upper 30s. Mostly clear tonight with lows in the upper teens to mid 20s. Watching the potential for a winter storm that could bring rain and snow late Thursday night into the day on Friday. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Por primera vez en un laboratorio, los investigadores pudieron generar más energía a partir de las reacciones de fusión que la que usaron para iniciar el proceso. La ganancia total fue de alrededor del 150%. El logro se produjo en la Instalación Nacional de Ignición, un complejo láser de 3.500 millones de dólares en el Laboratorio Nacional Lawrence Livermore en California. NIF ha luchado para cumplir su objetivo declarado de producir una reacción de fusión que genere más energía de la que consume. Pero eso cambió en la oscuridad de la noche del 5 de diciembre. Los investigadores usaron rayos láser para eliminar una pequeña bolita de combustible de hidrógeno. Los láseres produjeron 2.05 megajulios de energía y la pastilla liberó aproximadamente 3.15 megajulios. Esto es un hito importante, uno que en el campo de la ciencia de la fusión ha luchado por alcanzar durante más de medio siglo. Los investigadores dicen que la energía de fusión algún día podría proporcionar electricidad electricidad limpia y segura sin emisiones de gases de efecto invernadero. Pero incluso con este anuncio, los científicos independientes creen que ese sueño aún está a muchas décadas de distancia. En otras informaciones, una multitud de miles de personas se reunió en una fría tarde de martes para ver al presidente Joe Biden promulgar la legislación sobre el matrimonio homosexual, una ceremonia alegre que se vio atenuada por el telón de fondo de una reacción conservadora en curso sobre cuestiones de género. Esta ley y el amor que defiende dan un golpe contra el odio en todas sus formas, dijo Biden en el Jardín Sur de la Casa Blanca. Legisladores de ambos partidos asistieron a la ceremonia del martes, lo que refleja la creciente aceptación de las uniones entre personas del mismo sexo, una vez entre los temas más polémicos del país. Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Cool Films with Larry Hott, Foreign Space Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. Larry, you have some films to review for us today. What are we going to start with? Well, we're going to start with something that's not a documentary for a change. It's Steven Spielberg's Fablemans. I saw it recently, and it occurred to me that this is more than just a normal feature film. And it's more than a Romana Clay, you know, a novelization 
uh, or fictionalization of his life. This is a film about an obsession. And it's about an obsession with cameras and the eye and the view and the gaze. And there are several documentaries that do the same thing this year. And I thought I could connect Steven Spielberg's life with two other fantastic documentaries that have recently been released. One's called The Balcony Movie and the other is The Camera of Dr. Morris. But first, let me talk about Fablemans. You probably know who Steven Spielberg is. If you don't, you're not a sentient being in the United States. Uh, the most famous filmmaker of, of all time in the country and one of the highest grossing filmmakers. But his background is actually quite normal. He's a suburban Jewish kid originally from New Jersey and then moves to Cincinnati and then to Arizona and then out to California. And as a child, he's completely obsessed with movies and cameras. And the fictionalization of his life really hews very close to the true story. So I think if, in a second we're going to hear a clip, but you get a sense from this clip of the tension that he was able to put into this film. But when I looked over his actual biography on Wikipedia, I realized that most of what you see in this film is true. So let's let's hear the clip. Movies are dreams. That you never forget. Sammy? change how everything looks it's hard to find our house ours is the dark house with no lights in this family it's the scientists versus the artists sammy's on my team takes after me what he does it's playful or imaginative you could afford to be a little encouraging she should have been the concert piano player what she got in her heart is what you got larry hot i i i want to know uh, uh, this i want your opinion um as well why create a fictionalization of something that is fundamentally a biography. Why create, is the word, is it a docu-pick or a docudrama? What is it? Been, and why do it this way? Why not just tell his story and have someone play him? Well, he wants to get across a point of view. And the point of view, we heard it just at the, at the end there about uh, when he's talking, he's the, the character Boris, which is his uh, uncle, is talking about um, the conflict between your art and your passion and your family. And the conclusion in this film is, and it's said over and over again, is that art is more important than your family, that you should follow your passion. And if you decide to support your family and not follow your passion, you yourself will be lost. That's really not the message we usually get, right? Usually the message we get is family first overall. And the reason I found this fascinating is because his passion here is what drives him and keeps him alive in spite of all the things that are going on in his family. And he sees his actually his family falling apart and his 
the sense that, that, that the young Spielberg character, Sammy, in this film gets is that the family doesn't necessarily last. You last, and your passion lasts, lasts, and your art lasts. So he has a camera stuck in his eye during the entire film. And the, the best part about the Fablemans are the films that he makes as a kid. His amateur films that he uses to get his Eagle Scout badge, and they are hilarious. Um, one of them is called The Last Gunfight. Another one's Escape to Nowhere, which is a World War II action film. They're 10 or 15 minute shorts that he makes. He actually made these films as a kid, and they're recreated in The Fablemans, and they are absolutely hilarious because you get to see the characters who are the actors, and then you see them in this little film. And I think that the fact that he used the same names in the films as he, that he did as a youth that he puts into the fictionalized version shows how much he thinks this really is part of his life. And the reason I wanted to talk about Fablemans, and not, a, not uh, the documentaries that I usually talk about, is because I'm starting to see in other documentaries the idea of the importance of the camera to people's lives. And there's one I just watched out of Poland called The Balcony Movie. The filmmaker's name is Paweł Lozinski, takes a camera, sticks out of his balcony, his second floor balcony of his house in the city, and he films people walking by his house over a two-year period. And what he does is he sticks a microphone on the post of his fence, sticks a boom on a mic, and puts a mic on a boom and sticks it out the window, and starts asking people, total strangers, stopping them, hey, would you talk to me for a second? And says, what's going on in your life? What's happening? Are you happy? Are you not happy? And of course, people start spilling the beans. And you know he's editing it, so you know, you're not seeing the people who refuse to talk to him, although plenty of people refuse. But people start talking about their relationships, their loves, their, their dogs, their children. They bring their children back. And over two years, people start coming back just to talk to him. My favorite character in the entire film is his wife, who walks out of the house with the dog and looks up at him and says, why don't you clean the house for a change? Why don't you walk the dog? <laughs> and this, this is all happening where, Larry? This is happening in, in Poland. Uh, I imagine it's Warsaw. It's a big city. Um, and you get a, 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 an understanding of his family, his wife, the dog, and all of his neighbors, all with one frame. He moves the camera back and forth a little bit. But he's obsessed. And his wife says to him, why don't you put down the camera sometimes? Why don't you do some housework? Right? He's completely obsessed. Uh, there's another film. That I, that I saw, that, and I, I would play clips from these, but one's in Polish and the other one's in, in Hebrew. It's called With the sub subtitles or the or their voiceovers? The, the, it title, the title of the one from Poland is called The Balcony Movie, a, a very literal title. Uh, the man sticks the camera out of the balcony window and films everything that goes by. Another film and, is... Let, let, me, so, let me just ask you this. So the, yeah. the one on the balcony movie, it, it, are, are, are the... Is, are there voiceovers? I mean, it's in Poland. It's, is it in Polish? Are there English subtitles? It's, it's, How's that it's done? Just, it's, just, it's just subtitled. Okay. You know, it's uh, almost completely in, in Polish. Occasionally somebody speaks English and goes by. Uh, a lot of people uh, greet each other in French, just sort of as a affectionate greeting. But you no, know, it's, all, it's all in Polish. It's very colloquial, uh, very neighborly. Uh, the, the, the neighborhood cleaning lady is a star in the film. Um, but you see, there's, there's a very poignant scene where a man standing alone says that he's very, he's very sad. He just lost his partner of 40 years. 
And he says, what kind of partner? He says, a man. And he says, how did you, what are you talking about? He says, I lived with a man for 40 years, um, but I told everybody he was my brother. And through this, you, the conversation, you realize this man has been living in a, in a society that's not that completely, not that open to, to gay lovers, um, is revealing to a total stranger in a balcony <laughs> that his, his partner of 40 years, his male partner of 40 years has died. There's another scene where a woman walks by with a little baby. So she's very, very happy that she has her baby. And then as she walks off, she, you see out of the corner of the frame, her girlfriend and gives her girlfriend a kiss and strolls off with the baby. And so you've seen this little side element of Polish society all, all from his window. And again, the, also, the title sorry, of this film is? They can't to live. The title of the film is? The title of the film is The Balcony Movie. It's on HBO Max. Uh, generally, that means that that's the place you can see it for free if you have HBO Max, but you can usually pay $2.99 or $3.99 to see it someplace else. Okay. This is Cool Films with Larry Hot. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. Larry's going to have a recommendation on a third film as well. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. At American National, what's important to you is important to us. Just like every horse is unique, so is our equine coverage. American National's equine owner's insurance is designed to address the inherent risks involved with owning horses. Flexible enough to provide property and liability coverage for operations of various sizes, yet can be tailored for your specific needs. We're right by your side. For more information, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. Cooper's Corner in Florence can be a real time saver for you around the holidays. When you run out, run in. We have what you need. Cooper's is also the place to order fresh baked from scratch pies or to pick up a nice wine or fresh produce or deli party platters. Cooper's Corner, a part of the community for nearly 50 years. We're the Coopers. We're your neighbors. We treat you right. Main and Chestnut Streets, Route 9, Florence. Open every day of the year. And in Northampton, State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits has what you need for the holidays and all year long. Open Seven days. The State Street Deli has the cheese you want for holiday entertaining like genuine Italian Parmesan, free with herbs, Morbier, French Saint Andre, and award-winning domestic cheese such as Vermont cheddar, Maytag blue, and goat cheese. You'll also find at State Street a great selection of cold cuts and pâtés, and we create the best deli platters and fruit baskets. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton, open till 9 every day. Hey everyone, it's Tina Marie, co-pilot of The Cambridge Connection. I'm also a certified credit counselor. For 25 years, I've been helping people have a better relationship with money while getting out of debt. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. right here on WHMP, join me, Gordon, and our variety of amazing experts who stop by to offer great advice navigating the daily financial maze of life. Bitcoin and crypto expert Ben Noble stops by to give an update on the state and fate of this unique currency. Some people know how to prepare seafood. 
Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And we continue cool films with Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Florence Bass, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. We have been talking about The Fablemans. Thank you for that review and for the review and your observations with regard to the Balcony movie. You have a third film you want to bring to our attention today. Larry, what is it? The third film is called The Camera of Dr. Morris. This is an extraordinary film out of Israel. It's about a man named Dr. Morris who moves his family from Britain to Israel uh, after the war in 1948 or so, moves to Eilat, which is just a small village on the, on the sea south, uh, south of Israel, now a famous resort, but at the time it was a place where, uh, where ex-prisoners went. Uh, there were very few people there at all. And he establishes a little British enclave there and starts raising his family. Well, that sounds actually kind of normal, but he decides to document everything with his home movie camera, absolutely everything. Everything, the birth of everything. The birth <laughs> is, the, is this the, man the, an the, the, the He he performs. He 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 is the doctor who delivers his child, and he sets the camera up on a stand and films it. He okay? is so an that's, overshare. Yep. That's, yep. That's everything. So this goes on. This goes on for forty years or so of all this filming he does, and then he passes away. Four years later, the family opens a closet and finds all the reels of film perfectly preserved in the dry air of a lot and gets in touch with some filmmakers and they go through the film and films and they are amazed at how beautifully shot they are and the story they tell without any even any necessary voiceover but what they do is they take all the surviving members of the family and interview them about everything in these films you never see them on camera just their voices alone, alone tell the story of this family. It's also the story of Israel, of course, because over a 40 or 40 or 50 year period. And finally, at the very end of the film, uh, one of the children has a cell phone video of the of the father, the doctor, who's in be in bed dying, who turns to the camera and says, well, I guess this is the end. Right. <laughs> what a perfect ending for the film. But the point, the reason I brought this up and the reason I'm bringing it up with the Fablemans and the Balcony movie is here's a man who was obsessed with the camera. The Balcony movie, the man is obsessed with the camera. He can't live without po pointing that camera at somebody. And Spielberg cannot live without making movies. It's clear that he has to be not only making the movies, but what I think, this is the realization I just came out of came to me is one of the reasons that people make movies is because that gives them control. You are the God when you are the movie maker. In the film, his family is falling apart, but he can edit. And in fact, that's one of the themes that comes out in the film. He can edit out the bad parts and he can only show what he wants to show. And a filmmaker has control, particularly when they edit. So this is what what Spielberg is doing, and why he can, why he makes a feature fiction film rather than a documentary, is he can say exactly what he wants to say in a nuanced, poetic way 
without having to worry about whether something is real or completely true. That adheres very closely to what happened. That's almost, to me, coincidental, right? Because really the essence of his story is that his art is and his passion was more important to him than his family. Wow. Tell us the title of the third film, the Israeli film. It's called The Camera of Dr. Morris. And like all these films, you have to look them up on the web and find out where they're playing. Um, I'm sure that uh, it's, I have a feeling that this one, Camera Dr. Morris, will be making it to American theaters uh, very soon. It's such an extraordinary piece of work. Uh, there's a special, how about I say, hidden stories in it, surprise stories in it about uh, birth, death, adoption, things that you don't expect to come out of it. Um, beautifully told and beautifully filmed by the Dr. Morris himself. And you recommend all three of these films, I take it. Oh, yes. And, you know, I wish people could experience the way I experienced them. And almost coincidentally, I saw the Balcony movie, I saw the camera of Dr. Morris, and then I saw the Fablemans, and I realized all these three films are, are, are related, directly related. We're going to leave it there. This has been Cool Films with Foreign Space Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. Cool Films with Larry Hott. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock.